experienced as we have grown older is the privilege of being grandparents. Many of you know that feeling. We have six grandchildren ranging in ages from five years to nine months. One of them goes here with our daughter Heidi, Isaiah. He's almost three. But it is such a joy. Time spent with them is such a blessing. Recently, we were in Athens taking care of our granddaughters that live there. Now, you're going to have to indulge me a grandparent story here. It was after dinner. Their parents had gone out on a date to a restaurant, and we're taking care of the girls. And so before bedtime, we decided to have a fun game of hide-and-seek. And now hide-and-seek for Leah and Abby, who are four years and two years old at the time, is usually not too challenging. Uh, they tell me, Granddaddy, you count, and we will go hide. Well, they usually don't leave the room, and they usually, you know, I'll count, and I'll say, ready or not, here I come, and there they are, and uh, they're, you know, hiding behind the curtain with their feet sticking out, or they're behind a sofa or a chair peering out looking to see if I'm looking for them, and so it's really not that hard to find them, and uh, most of the time I do the same when I hide. I'll just throw a blanket over me and stay in the same place. And most of the time, it's not too hard. You know, the important thing is the laughter and the squeals and being together. But on this particular occasion, I, for whatever reason, I decided I would ramp it up a bit and make things a little more challenging. So when it was my turn to hide, I actually left the room. And I went into my daughter and son-in-law's bedroom and went into a closet and hid behind a door there. Well, you could hear them saying, ready or not, and then they go running around because I'm not in the room, so they're running throughout the house, and they're laughing, and they're squealing and giggling. And you can hear them go upstairs, and then they come running back downstairs, and they're like, Granddaddy, where are you, Granddaddy? And they run into the bedroom where I'm at, but they don't look in the closet. So they run back out. Well, when they get far enough away, I decide, well, I'm going to make you know, make a little hint for them, so I decide to make a loud noise. I go, whoa, whoa, and they come running back into, but they don't look in the closet. So my wife, Jackie, she's in the living room, in the adjoining living room right there by the bedroom, and she begins to encourage them to um, keep looking in the bedroom. Well, they come back in, but, but each time their search comes up in, empty, and soon the laughter is kind of getting replaced with this quiet sense of bewilderment. We just can't find him. And even if I would make that noise, which I won't do again, they would, they would come in and, and they'd still not look behind the door. So I'm peering out of the crack in the door and I'm witnessing this whole thing take place. And with a sense of resignation, Leah and Abby climbed up on their parents' bed. And then Leah, who's the four-year-old, she looks down at Ivy, who is their pet calico cat, and she says this, and I'm watching the whole thing. She says, Ivy, have you seen a boy come in here with no hair? <laughs> and I about lost it. But then it got better. Then she looked at her two-year-old sister, Abby, and she says, you know, Abby, maybe granddaddy prayed to God and God made him invisible. <laughs> and I was laughing so hard behind that closet door, I about doubled over. 
it is so much fun being with them and hearing them express what their little minds are thinking. You know, even though God didn't make me invisible that day, never has to my recollection, he still calls us to the miraculous. When we think of miracles, our minds are often drawn to the, the sensational and the hard to believe, hard to explain. But when we read of the miracles Jesus performed in the Bible, when he healed the blind man, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he multiplied the loaves and the fish and fed the 5,000, he fed the 10,000, we're amazed by that. How cool it would have been if we had lived during that time and been able to witness those events firsthand. And while we never can put God in a box, we must understand that God is still doing the miraculous, albeit many times in circumstances and hearts and lives that we might mistakenly dismiss as ordinary and easily explained on a human level. And this is especially true when we consider the marvelous truth of salvation. There is nothing more miraculous and supernatural than a life that is dead in sin being made alive eternally through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 2, we're told that our condition before Christ is that we were dead in our sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace you've been saved. So salvation is truly a miracle. And it's impossible apart from the miraculous power of God. And the wonderful and the wondrous combine when we come to realize that we have been chosen by God to participate in the miraculous. We are called by him to live in such a way that intentional missional living results in lives that are changed by the gospel. To highlight this further, if you would, turn with me to the book of uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, this is not the main passage we're looking at, but I want to point out something here. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Look at what it says here about the calling that we have. Peter writes, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it says that those who are in Christ are chosen. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're God's special possession. We occupy such a high and important place in God's kingdom, it says. See, we have gone from being objects of wrath to so privileged in God's sight. So how are we to respond to this? Are we to sit back and bask in our place of privilege like pudgy monarchs on ornate and decorative thrones? Why do we live in such a place of honor? It says, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
That's our privilege. That's why what we get to do. It's not sitting back and soaking. It's going out and doing something that's so significant, participating in the miraculous because the miraculous has happened to us. So the miraculous has happened to us so that we might declare the glorious gospel so that people might be saved from every nation, tribe, and tongue. See, we are blessed so that we could be a blessing. And Jesus set the example for us and modeled the life we're called to in his encounter with a man named Zacchaeus, the tax collector. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, because this is the passage we'll be looking at this morning and focusing on Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, with Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. And it reads, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While Zacchaeus was a unique person who was an actual part of human history, he represents the countless millions who are lost and alienated from God, who have no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus. We see that Jesus offered three things to impact Zacchaeus in a profound way. His presence, a relationship, and the gospel. And as a result, Zacchaeus's life was profoundly changed. And he gave evidence of this change through his actions. In the same way, God calls each of us, who are his chosen people, his special possession, we're called to live in such a way that attracts people to the glories of Christ as they are called out of darkness and into light. It is our purpose and the reason that the church exists As we take this calling seriously, we will experience the joy of witnessing the miraculous as people are brought from death to life and experience the power of God in their own lives. So first in this passage, we see that Jesus encountered a person who was broken and in need. Even though Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, his riches, so often people think they can depend on riches. We all tend to be tempted that way but he found that riches could not soothe the emptiness and pain that he must have felt as a traitor and enemy among his own people. He lived in a town called Jericho. Now, Jericho is an ancient city located in a desert area just northwest of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. It's well known for being the city that was destroyed by Joshua as he led the Israelites. They crossed the the Jordan River, and into the promised land. 
And you remember the song, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. About 10 years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to visit Jericho when we were visiting my daughter Heidi while she was living in the Middle East. And yes, there near the busy main street of this historic city is a prominent sycamore tree. Now, it was marking that biblical event where Jesus and Zacchaeus met each other. Now, sycamore trees are spreading trees, like oak trees, which are easily climbed. And as I viewed this tree, I imagined a little man perched in a place where he could have gotten a view of the hope that his heart longed for. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was a Jew. He had a Hebrew name. But he worked for the Roman government, which oppressed Israel. And the taxes that the Roman government or the Roman Empire levied on their Jewish subjects were harsh and cruel and relentless. And the Israelites were greatly offended by the unjust way that they were treated by the Romans through this taxation. So Zacchaeus, as a representative of this system, would have been terribly unpopular. On top of this, most tax collectors gleaned their income by taking additional money off of the top from the people. They would get more money from the people along with the taxes in order to support themselves. So not only was Zacchaeus a wealthy man, but he had prospered by cheating his own people by the expense of his own people, the Jews. He was a despised traitor, and the last person one would have wanted to include as a friend or a social contact. And, and likely, like all who allow greed to control them and uh, control their decision-making and cloud their decision-making, Zacchaeus was a miserable man with deep pain which he believed no one could understand. He was trapped in a prison of his own making, and the brokenness and, he, the, and guilt that he felt was excruciating. He obviously had heard of Jesus, and he wanted to find a way to be able to see him. He was curious to see this man whose miracles and teaching had created so much buzz and fanfare. But Zacchaeus faced not only moral and spiritual limitations, he was also handicapped by a physical limitation. You see, he was a short man. And this kept him from being able to see over the crowd as they were lining the streets to witness the arrival of this famous teacher and miracle worker. And this was probably just one more blow to his ego. No matter how much money he made, he still couldn't be taller. So he ran ahead and he climbed that tree in order to get some advantage, to get a good view of Jesus. As we consider these verses that describe the tax collector who was a bad man in the eyes of his neighbors, a man who cruelly took advantage of others, an unjust individual with few friends, it reminds us that we never know what is truly going on in the hearts and minds of others. Whether a person seems to have it all together or lives in such a way that elicits a response of pity and shame, we really never know a person's deepest hopes and fears unless they share those with us. Zacchaeus was a man created by God and loved deeply by him. 
Little did anyone know that he might be open to repentance and a change of heart. Only God knew that. But unless we go to places where people are and spend time with them, we don't really get to know them. And Jesus was out among the people, sharing life with them so that he might reach them. And unless we go to the lost, to the hurting, we will never be able to impact them with the gospel. As long as we stay within the four walls of this church or stay to ourselves, we really never know how much we can impact someone and share with them the truth. See, we've begun a ministry at this church in the past few months called Pray and Go. On certain Saturdays, we have a group of people gather at our church that meet together and go out into the neighborhoods around Smyrna to pray over each home and share with others, letting them know what, that they are loved and that they're cared for. And we'll leave door hangers on the doors expressing this and letting them know um, of our prayers for them. A few weeks ago, the last time we did this, <clears throat> I was walking through a neighborhood not far from the church, and it was an ordinary day. I had systematically gone from house to house seeking to pray, meaningful prayers, but, you know, quite often I would be at a loss for words and knowledge as to really what to pray, but I would leave a door hanger on the door conveying God's love. Well, as I left one front door, I was walking back down the steps, and a man who had seen me came running out the side door onto the driveway, and he was trying to get my attention and caution me. He didn't want me to ring a doorbell. There was someone asleep in the house. He was afraid I was going to wake him up. So I told him we weren't ringing doorbells, but I wanted to share with him uh, what we were doing. And I told him how we were going around and praying over each home. And, and um, he thanked me. And as he stood there, he was smoking a cigarette, and he nodded, and he, 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 he thanked me for doing what we were doing. And then I felt impressed to just ask him. I said, sir, is there anything at all that I could pray for you about? And at that moment, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, lately... I've been really sad and depressed. I would appreciate it if you would pray for me now. And I said, yeah, I'll pray for you. So I went ahead and prayed, and I got a chance to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation in him alone. And he seemed to really take it in and to really be encouraged by what I had to say. The Lord impressed upon my heart that day the importance of going out and being among people if I hadn't done so, I would have never encountered this one who needed to hope that day. See, we never know who God may have for us to minister to unless we make ourselves available. The presence of those who have the gospel of Christ is so needed. The lost and hurting are all around us. Well, as we move on in verses 5 through 7, we see that Jesus entered <clears throat> into a relationship because of a holiness that attracts, a holiness that attracts. Look at this. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Well, the crowded procession began to move closer and closer. And Zacchaeus peered out from his perch, hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by, but little did he know that Jesus was coming 
but he wanted to see him. In fact, when he reached the tree that Zacchaeus was in, he stopped, he looked up, and he called him by name. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus had found me hiding in a tree and called my name, depending on how I was feeling that day, I might not have been too excited about that. We're aware of the sin in our lives. And we might get the wrong idea that the only reason Jesus wants to spend time with us is so that he can condemn us or shame us because he is so holy and we are not. And with his background, Zacchaeus might have had reason to avoid Jesus, fearful that he might reject him just like so many others had all throughout his life. And this is something we need to be aware of, I believe, as a church. The world around us already has preconceived notions of how they might be treated if we were to spend time with them. If they were to walk in these doors. Some of this reputation is undeserved. But sometimes our attitudes and actions can foster this reputation. 2 Peter 2 tells us of our privileged position as chosen people, as royal priesthood. We're royalty. We're holy, a holy nation. And if we're not careful, we might take that and say, yes, we've been made holy, and kind of walk around patting ourselves on the back. But this holiness is not ours to impress others. It's to attract others. You see, we have received holiness only by what Jesus has done. It's by grace alone. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. There's no place for pride on our part. We are made holy not by our own efforts, but by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And sometimes our misplaced pride can come across as a holier-than-thou attitude, which repels others rather than attracts them. It was the attitude of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. When the invitation to spend time with Zacchaeus was offered, look at verse 7. What was the reaction of so many of the people in the crowd? Many of them, I'm sure, religious people. When they observed this, it says that they began to mutter and grumble among themselves. In their mind, holiness meant staying apart from the sinner instead of reaching out to him with compassion. And this is a false man-centered holiness that is not the true life-changing transformation brought to us from the Holy Spirit. When we have truly been made new by the work of God alone, we display a holiness that attracts and draws people to us. They can see the difference. So our heart towards the lost changes when we realize how much we have been forgiven when we never deserved it. We are then free to offer this same grace through the gospel to others. Well, obviously, Zacchaeus could sense this difference in Jesus. He was immediately drawn to him. And verse 6 says that he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly into a spirit of joy and excitement. Here was someone who truly loved him in spite of his faults and his imperfections. And he wanted that kind of love in his own life. I believe there are people all around us today who feel the same way that Zacchaeus did. Many of them are not interested in church because they perceive it to be an institution which condemns and judges them instead of a place where they will be loved and cared for. And the only way they'll be able to see their error will be when they see you and me as individuals loving them. 
And the good news we have to share is that Jesus does not condemn them. But he rather, he stands ready to heal their broken lives. In his book, Mortal Lessons, physician Richard Seltzer describes a situation where he had to perform surgery on a tumor in the face of a beautiful young woman who had been happily married for four years. He told her that he was going to have to cut the tumor out and that there was a good chance that in doing so he would cut a nerve. And he said he would do everything to avoid that, but if he had to cut the nerve, the whole left side of her face would droop and be distorted for the rest of her life. Seltzer describes the scene in the hospital room after the surgery. He writes, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsying, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to be in a world all their own. In the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private, who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods in his silence. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Jesus came to us, and he allowed his body to be twisted on a cross so that our brokenness might be healed. Through him, our sin is forgiven, and we are put back in the right place just as he offered this new life to Zacchaeus and each of us. He sends us out to bring the good news through pursuing relationships with others for the sake of the gospel. In verses 8 through 10, we see that Jesus brings salvation, evidenced by a changed life. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus and his heart is open to this new life that is offered to him. And he began the day as a man who was desperately lost weighed under by the heavy weight of sin and guilt in his life. But greed had consumed and controlled him so much that he was willing to be a hated enemy of his own people. But Jesus sought him out intentionally. And as a result of the time he spent with him, this broken man found hope and forgiveness and a new life with real purpose. 
The impact Jesus had on him was, was substantial. It is seen in the monumental change of heart in his life with regard to wealth and material possessions. He had gone from a man who was willing to compromise morality to sabotage friendship and basically do anything necessary to get more money to a, a man who is willing to give it away in order to follow Jesus. And when he says that he's willing to pay back those that he has cheated four times the amount, he is going way beyond the law's requirements. The Old Testament law in Numbers says that restitution only required returning the amount plus one-fifth. Jesus declares to him that today salvation had come to him. See, he was saved not by his works, but by his willingness to open his heart to Jesus and follow him in obedience, regardless of the cost. When Jesus calls him a, a son of Abraham, he means it in the truest spiritual sense, one who has tr truly believed in Jesus and put his faith and trust completely in him. And Jesus goes on to tell us that what has happened in Zacchaeus' life is the very reason that he came to us. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And as followers of Jesus, as we hear these words, we should be moved to be about our master's business. As we spend time with those he calls us to, we're able to see the miraculous take place. People brought from death to life because they see and hear what Jesus has done in our lives and the difference he makes and the tremendous difference he can make for them as well. And this can only happen as we too are living as disciples of Jesus and are following his example of seeking the lost so that we might share the gospel with them. Pastor and author J.D. Greer in his book Gaining by Losing states that we need a fundamental shift in how we think about the mission of the church. He uses three types of, of ships to illustrate the different way church members view the church. Some see it as a cruise liner, offering all kinds of services and activities designed to make their lives and their family's life better. For these members, the church should cater to them and their preferences, and there's little concern for those who are not on the ship. He says that others view the, the church more like a battleship. The role of the church member here is to pay the pastors and the church staff to find the targets and fire the guns each week as they come together to watch. However, there is little thought of their own participation in the mission. But the metaphor we should use for the mission, according to Greer, is the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier equips planes to carry out the battle elsewhere. Effective churches, Greer points out, are discipleship factories and sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. In other words, if we're going to penetrate the lostness and the world around us, we all have to take seriously the call to be equipped so that we can do the ministry that Jesus set before us as he built a gospel-centered relationship with Zacchaeus. It's something that we all have to do together. There are so many who stand ready to hear that Jesus is real and that he offers real hope to them more than we know. Because as Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Until we share, we may never know how many are truly ready to respond. 
This fact was driven home to me a number of years ago as I was serving as a youth minister in another community. A girl in our youth group was dating a guy who seemed to be Mr. Everything at the local high school. He was all region in football, all region in baseball. He was voted best-looking senior guy in the yearbook. He was dating the homecoming queen. He seemed to have everything that any guy in high school would want to have to be able to be popular. And she brought him to church with her a couple of times. I was able to meet him, although I didn't really know him very well. He was pretty quiet and to himself. But he was an impressive young man with a long list of achievements. And that is why I was taken aback one day. His girlfriend called my wife and told her that he had attempted to take his own life. He had overdosed on some pills and was rushed to the hospital. When he returned home, my wife suggested that I go and visit with him. And my first thoughts were, he probably doesn't want to see me or talk to me. He doesn't, after all, I I really didn't know him well. He, He barely knew me. But she was right. And I agreed, and and with his address in hand, I took another youth leader with me, and we drove out to visit him. And he lived in a remote part of the rural county. We made a couple of wrong turns trying to locate the house. It was way out there. But, But we finally found it. It was sitting by itself on a hill on a large plot of land. And I prayed silently as I drove down that driveway, a dirt path, really, that was leading up to his home. I had my doubts as to how he was going to receive our visit, but I knew we were in the right place. When I saw him, he was standing inside the house, looking out the living room window, which was all lit up, and I knew we were in the right place. We parked, and we walked up to the door, and he opened it before we could knock. And I reintroduced myself and introduced my friend who was with me, And he nodded, and he invited us in. And we awkwardly entered the living room. We sat down. I began by telling him that we had heard he was going through some hard times, and we just wanted to see if there was any way that we could help. And he looked at us a moment, and then he looked down. He looked back up. And then he said, you know, I stayed awake all last night, couldn't sleep. He said, I I tried to pray. He said, I looked up to God and I told him, I know I need to be saved, but I didn't know how. And then I said to him, God, if you are there, would you please send someone to show me how I could be saved? He said, when I saw you drive up and walk up that path, my door, I knew God had answered my prayer. And there in the living room, we were able to leave this young man to trust Jesus Christ alone as his Savior. You see, God is already working in the hearts and lives of people before we ever share with them. And there are many more who are ready to receive him than there are those of us who are ready and willing to share. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
The miraculous happened to Zacchaeus on that day that he climbed a tree to see Jesus. The miraculous happened to that young athlete when he called out to the Lord in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep. Do you want to see the miraculous? Take seriously the call and example of Jesus Christ and make it a priority to share his good news whenever and wherever he calls you. Let's do that as a church and let's pray. Lord, you tell us the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Surely we who are chosen by you to be a part of your kingdom need to be about your business. I pray that you would work deeply within our lives, equip us, and make us ready to take this gospel in all the places where it's so needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.